Well, Pastor Stan already said it, but uh, happy Mother's Day. I'm so grateful uh, for God's good plan of family, including mothers. And, uh, you know, one of the advantages of doing all these services online uh, over the last few weeks uh, is that my mom's been able to participate in each of them. And so, Mom, I will call you later today. Your card will probably come a day late, but I love you. I'm grateful for all that you have done to love and care for me. Uh, and, and, uh, so grateful for my wife, Kirsten, uh, being such an incredible mom uh, to our kids. She's been serving in so many different ways. Just like we heard the video from Jeff earlier, yes, he's serving as a deacon, the treasurer of our church, but serves in so many other ways. Uh, you know, Kirsten is the secretary here. Uh, eight weeks in a row now, she's been playing keyboard and, and leading the, the worship team. And uh, on top of that, uh, and probably over and above that, in addition to being an incredible wife, we have an anniversary coming up in in a little over a week, and uh, I'm also just really grateful for how well she loves our kids. So grateful for moms, grateful for God's gift of moms, and uh, grateful that we get to meet in this way. I know uh, maybe part of your Mother's Day tradition is that you spend it in the morning with your church family and then in the afternoon with family, and maybe none of that's happening today. So I hope that this is still a blessing and encouragement to you. We are just getting back into our series in the book of Acts. Like I said, you're probably not doing Mother's Day like you would normally do Mother's Day. And for, for most of us, we would have to say things are not going our way. Just generally, lately, uh, things are not going our way. It's like we, we might feel like we have plans, or maybe you've been in a season of life like this before, where it feels like every time you try to take a step forward, there's some sort of opposition. There's something standing in the way. You might ask, where's God in all of this? And a question for you this morning. Do you believe that God might be at work creating opportunity through opposition? Today, like I said, we're going to continue our series in the book of Acts. And when we left off, the church was experiencing growing pains. We left off partway through chapter 6. And the solution to those growing pains, the pains were coming about because the church was rapidly growing and the church was doing what the church should do. And that is caring for those who had, did not have the means to care for themselves. In this case, widows. There was a food distribution program that the church had set up and Unfortunately, a subgroup of the widows uh, in the church, the Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jewish widows, were being neglected. And the, the apostles were busy with all sorts of work that they were called to do, especially ministry of the word and prayer. They needed to continue in that work, but this important work of making sure widows were cared for also needed to be uh, taken care of. So... The solution that we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 6 was that servants were selected to support the spread of the gospel. Seven men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. One of them was Stephen, another was Philip, and then there were five others. Interestingly, now in the book of Acts, we're going to hear a lot more from these men. In the book so far, uh, here's, by the way, just a reminder of what we've said really the theme of the book of Acts is, it's this, that Jesus' work continues through Holy Spirit-empowered witnesses who proclaim the gospel of Jesus from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Now, in almost all of the book of Acts, the main characters, the ones carrying out this mission, 
are the apostles, especially Peter and John in the beginning, and later in the book, the apostle Paul. But there's a break from the main characters in this section of Acts right now. Chapter 6, 7, and 8, really the focus turns away from the apostles and focuses in on two of these seven men selected as really the first deacons of the church. In chapter 6 and 7, the focus is on Stephen and the work that God was doing in and through him. And then in chapter 8, Philip, another of those men. And all through this book, and even especially in this passage, we're going to see how God faithfully takes opposition against the spread of the gospel, opposition against his people, and causes that to lead into some kind of opportunity for his people. Uh, so I'm going I'm to pray, uh, and rather than read the entire passage, today we're going to be looking at chapter 6, verse 8, through chapter 7, verse 16. So rather than read through all of it, I'm going to read through it as we go. So we will get through all of it as well. Uh, I should mention in the description of the video, sermon notes and application guide, there's a link there. You can just follow that link and you can download or print uh, the sermon notes and application guide. But let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you uh, that in the midst of uh, a time of unrest, really, a time where, where things feel out of place and we feel maybe out of sorts, I thank you that there are some things that are uh, continuing to be true, that we know for sure that your Holy Spirit dwells in all of us who believe, that, that the word, uh, that your word, every word of it has been inspired by your Holy Spirit. And so I thank you that your Holy Spirit worked in and through Luke, uh, the doctor historian who sought to write an accurate account of how the work of Jesus continued uh, after he ascended to heaven and as the Holy Spirit came to empower disciples. And so I pray that you'd help us to not just understand what happened in history, but also to see clearly today how it applies to us, how you, God, continue to bring about opportunity when it looks to us like there's just opposition. Help us to see that clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so opposition leads to opportunity. Uh, and again, three points today. First one is this. Stephen spreads the gospel through signs and speaking, but opposition arises. That's what we see first. At the end of chapter 6, we see Stephen spreading the gospel through signs and through speaking, but opposition arises. Now, Stephen, it says in verse 8, a man full of God's grace and power performed great wonders and signs among the people. We saw last time in chapter 6, the beginning of it, we saw that the men who were selected to be overseers of this food distribution program couldn't just be any guy who liked food. Like, like there were qualifications for these men. And Stephen, we're going to see, is a particularly gifted, spirit-filled man. Here it tells us in verse 8 that he's a man full of God's grace and power. And he, like the apostles, is performing wonders and signs among the people. But just as with the apostles, as he does this work of performing wonders and signs and speaking the truth of the gospel, what happens? Verse 9, opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. 
This is pretty common, isn't it, in the book of Acts, that when people are doing the work that God calls them to do, and that the Spirit empowers them to do, that there's then opposition. So Stephen, even though he's not one of the apostles, he's doing this work and opposition arises. But look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. They could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gives, the Spirit-filled, gifted, godly man. Alright, so what are they going to do about that? Well, here's where the opposition really ramps up. Verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they're persuading people uh, to do this. Verse 12. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. So stirring up a crowd, false accusations, bringing him into the Sanhedrin. You're going to hear echoes throughout this, really throughout the story of Stephen, of how it was that the people treated Jesus as well. Verse 13, they produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. And then verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So you see what's happening. They're bringing him in, taking him actually into the temple. The setting is going to become very important here. He is going to refer to it many times over the next couple weeks as we look at this passage. But here Stephen is standing in the temple before the Sanhedrin and what is happening is he's being falsely accused of a number of things. Have you ever been falsely accused of something? Verse 15 says this, All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was... Now before I read the rest of the verse, if you've been falsely accused of something... If you're sitting in front of a group of people who are saying things about you that are not true, you're being publicly humiliated, what does your face look like? Are you the type where veins start popping out of your neck? Are you the type that gets really quiet all of a sudden? Maybe you're breathing out of your nose really loudly. That's what I do, right? But look at how Stephen is reacting. All these looking intently at his face, what did they see? His face was like the face of an angel. As Stephen is completely at peace, it seems, and rest in God's power over this situation and over his life, his face appears to them like the face of an angel. In the face of this opposition standing against him, but remember, opposition often leads to opportunity. So verse 1 of chapter 7, Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? Now, remember what Stephen's job was. He was selected to be a servant, one of seven servants, overseeing the food distribution program for the widows in the church. This was a role given to him to support the spread of the gospel. But now he's standing before the Sanhedrin, and he's given an opportunity to testify. Well, this wasn't in the job description, was it? Have you had a job before where in your job description it said somewhere in there and other duties as a sign? 
You ever had a job like that? Maybe it said it, or even if it didn't say it, that's been an understood thing, right? That here's your job, and then you're going to have some other duties as assigned. When I was a youth pastor, I knew that with that role would come a number of things that I probably was totally not prepared for and I never would have expected to do. I could give you a long list of those things and tell you lots of stories. I'm going to tell you two really quick ones. One is this. Uh, I became a youth pastor and one of my things that came under the other duties as assigned was this opportunity I had, or a need really, uh, for me to become a bus driver. So I knew that as a youth pastor, we'd do a lot of events, we'd go a lot of places, and I would need to be like an event planner. But as the youth group grew and we had more and more students and we never had enough vehicles to get everybody places, the church decided we ought to buy a bus. And since I was always the one going on all these trips, it made sense for me to go and take the written test and to take the driving test and to get my CDL with a passenger endorsement. And so we had many adventures on this bus with me as the bus driver. I think of one in particular uh, where, where we were on our way back from some event and we had uh, a couple of other leaders and vehicles behind the bus. And I got a phone call while I was driving from the leader behind me who said that I was spraying up oil onto his windshield, which I don't know a lot about mechanics, but I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to do that. Like, oil's not supposed to be flying from a bus onto the windshield of a vehicle behind you. So we pull over, he takes a look at it because he knows more stuff, a lot more stuff than I do, and uh, checks it out, finding that there is a leak. And so we make a call uh, to another bus who could come and pick us up. It was actually his dad who owned a bus company, but he didn't have a license that day to cross the state line. So our bus had to get from where we were to the state line of South Dakota. And so we pulled over, we bought all the gallons of oil that this one store had, uh, got the oil, we poured a bunch in, pour a gallon at a time and start driving. We'd make it about 10 minutes before all the oil had run through the engine and sprayed out. And then we'd dump another gallon in until we got there. Lots of adventures. I was a youth pastor, uh, but also then a bus driver because that was one of my other duties as a son. One other quick story. Uh, I, I was also one year, uh, we went every year, uh, went with the students to camp. Uh, middle school students one week, high school students another week. We ran the camps ourselves um, and, and had all these rules, but we always had a nurse come with us who became the camp nurse. Well, one week uh, of camp, middle school camp it was, the nurse had something come up just before, uh, just before camp. And so we needed a camp nurse. And all the other youth pastors had these other roles and responsibilities that would not allow them to do it. So one of my other duties as assigned is I became the camp nurse. So before every meal, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm kind of uh, organizing all the medication and distributing it to children. Uh, when, they, when they came in, I figured this out, that with middle school students, any injury, pretty much an ACE bandage, uh, can fix it. Uh, you just wrap it around, whatever it was, tight. Like, how's that? Is that better? Yeah, it's feeling better. Great. Uh, camp nurse, youth pastor, Jeremy, right? You've had jobs like that, haven't you? Jobs where you signed up maybe for one thing, but you were called to do something else. And I would just say, I mean, we see this with Stephen here, don't we? Stephen, uh, had the job as a servant to help oversee a food distribution program. 
signs and wonders and public speaking before the Sanhedrin were not a part of that job description, but this is what God had him do, because opposition led to an opportunity. And let me just tell you this really quick, church. A healthy church has men and women who are available to do more than just their job. A healthy church has men and women who are available to do more than just their job. That's why Pastor Stan this week took the garbage out, changed the, the towels in the bathroom, all sorts of other things that he does on a weekly basis. Most of you don't have a job description as a church member. Hey, when a pandemic comes, I will call others to check on them. But many of you have been doing that. Awana volunteers, uh, you know, you would have been done with Awana by now, but I know a number of you continue to call students to encourage them, to pray with them, to talk with them, to listen to them share their verses. So there's so many ways in which people in our church family uh, are available to do more than just their job. And we're thankful for that. This is what Stephen was doing. So, all right, get back to this. I'm talking about bus driving and, and camp nursing and stuff. Let's get back to Acts chapter 7. Here's what we've seen. Stephen is going far beyond his job description. And as a result, he's facing opposition. The opposition has led to an opportunity. And now, the opportunity is going to turn into this. Basically a three-point sermon that, that Stephen's going to preach. And one application point at the end. And a response. We're going to take three weeks to go over this. Okay, um, So we're just going over point one of his sermon today. And the sermon text for point one in his sermon is the book of Genesis. For point two, it's the book of Exodus. And then it's after that, like the rest of the Old Testament. So, let's look at, well, I broke up his first point of his sermon into two points in this sermon. So, we're going to just go chapter 7, verse 2, through chapter 7, verse 16 for the last couple of points. We'll go through these a little more quickly. So first, for verses 2 to 8, we see lessons from Genesis part 1. And that is this. God makes and keeps promises. God makes and keeps promises. So, let's look at verse 2. He begins this way. Remember, the, the, the person in charge there had asked him, well, what do you say to this? All right, I'll tell you what I got to say. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Now, he sounds authoritative when he says this command, really, listen to me. But notice that he's also calling them brothers and fathers. He is a Jew, like the rest of them. They have common ground, and so he starts there, even with some term of respect. Some, most of you here, are older than me. You, I, I respect you like a father. Brothers and fathers, he says, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father, again, our father, Abraham, while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now, note, a lot of times, like I said, he's going to be referring to place because the temple was a place that was very important to the Jewish people and that's right where he is standing right now. He's going to attempt to show in this message that God is often at work and God doesn't only work in one particular place. So he reminds them that when God, the God of glory, appeared to our father Abraham, this was before he even lived in this place, when he lived far from here. Verse 3. What did God say? Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land that I will show you. Verse 4. So, he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land 
where you are now living. So did Abraham make it to this land? Yes, he did. But, verse 5, he gave him no inheritance here. Not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land. Even though at that time Abraham had no child. So Abraham just barely stepping foot there. God has already promised Abraham a land and a great nation coming from him. Many descendants. This is happening when Abraham is already a relatively old man with no children. But God is making this bold promise to Abraham. Verse 6. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated. Verse 7. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. One more verse before I say a couple things. Verse 8. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. And later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. God's promise would begin to be fulfilled, but not all would be fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime. There would be, as it said, 400 years of slavery in Egypt before the ultimate fulfillment, or before uh, the next step in the fulfillment of God's promise. The sign of the covenant is circumcision. The promise begins to be fulfilled when Abraham, uh, Abraham's wife gives birth to Isaac. And then there's Jacob. And Jacob becomes the father. Jacob is renamed Israel and becomes the father of the twelve patriarchs or the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, point of application before we move on. I think I need to be re- we need to be reminded in a time like this. In a time where a lot seems to be changing day in and day out, when it's hard to know, what can I trust in? Because this source says this, but then I saw this on YouTube, and then I saw this on Facebook, and then this was out there on Twitter, and all these different things that we think about, right? What can we trust in? Here's what we can trust in, church. We can trust that this same God who made promises in the Old Testament and has kept every one of them is the same God who makes and keeps promises today. A couple of years back, I had uh, we were in some passage of scripture that made me think of these promises of God, and so I made a little bookmark, and everybody in the church got one a couple of years ago. Uh, and so, actually, if you go to that sermon notes and application guide link in the description of the video, in addition to the sermon notes and application guide, there's also a link where you can download this and print it off. Kirsten printed it or took hers and has been in her Bible ever since then. And I've looked at it from time to time. It's just a a few, a sampling of some of God's promises. And this is a time, I think there are many times in our life where it would do us a lot of good to read and even memorize God's promises. Philippians 4.19, our memory verse for this week, is one of those promises. God supplying all of our needs that we can trust him to do this. This is a great time to know that our God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. So, where are we at in the story? Well, Stephen is sharing their history. He's reminding them, here's where we've come from as Jewish people. We're the children of God. The children of the God who makes and keeps covenant. 
But the rest of Genesis, have you read through the book of Genesis lately? If not, do it. He's really summarizing chapters 12 through 50 in Genesis. But if you remember the last few chapters, 37 through 50 in the book of Genesis, zoom in on the life of one of the people. His name is Joseph. He's one of the children of Jacob. Now as it zooms in on his life, it seems that there is opposition at every turn. Like, how is God going to fulfill his promises when all of these things seem to come against this man, Joseph? Now, let's go ahead and take a look at what some of those things are. This is what Stephen will recount in verses 9 through 16. He says this, Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him. Do you remember the story, Joseph? Uh, with the coat of many colors, Joseph being favored, uh, and, and so, um, so so the brothers get jealous. They throw him in a pit. They tell Dad that he's dead, but actually what they've done is they've sold him into slavery. He's been sold as a slave and taken into Egypt. Opposition coming not just from the outside, but opposition within the very people, the, the family of promise. It's in that very family that there's this kind of jealousy that leads to kids lying to their dad saying they're, they're, their brother's dead and selling their brother as a slave. That's the kind of opposition we're talking about. That's just from inside. But then we have this little glimmer of hope. But God was with them. Stephen reminds them, as they would know, Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, yes, but God was with him. This is what gives us hope. Verse 10, and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Imagine this, right? Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, a foreigner now living in the land as a slave, is recognized by the Pharaoh, the leader of the entire empire, who calls him to be basically second in command. God is doing a rescuing work. So, it's all going to be better, right? I mean, this is only one of the, one of the kids. And he's going to be just fine, obviously. So God will continue to fulfill his promise in the rest of the family over in Canaan, right? Uh, nope. Verse 11. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. Okay? Oh, so it looks like everything might turn out all right, and then boom, more opposition, another wall. Now, now what's going to happen? The famine is so widespread, it's taking over not only Canaan, but also Egypt. So in both places where the family is at right now, there is famine that brings about great suffering. They can't even find food. Alright, so what's going to happen? Let's just read through to the end. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. And on their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought them, or bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum 
of money. So Stephen just summarized Genesis. He'll get to Exodus for point two of the sermon. We're not going to get to that this week. We'll wait until next week for that. But disaster seemed to be averted, right? God came to rescue not only Joseph after he was sold into slavery, but all of his family, even using Joseph to do that uh, when famine struck both Canaan and Egypt. So God rescues. And I loved uh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is in the last chapter of Genesis, where, where the brothers are concerned, as I would be if I had sold my brother into slavery, they're concerned about what uh, he's going to do with them. And remember what, what he says? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God regularly takes opposition and turns it into opportunity. And so one generation dies, Jacob's body is carried to a tomb, but God's promise is carried on. So, again, Stephen has a lot more to say. He wants to get to the heart of the gospel. He will. He starts in the book of Genesis. That's a great place to start if you want to share the gospel with somebody. He's going to get to Exodus. He's going to move on from there. We'll look at that in the weeks to come. But I want to close by looking at one more point of application for us. And that is this. God is at work providing better than we deserve. God is at work providing better than we deserve. I started out the sermon saying, does it feel for you like things are not going your way? How do you like it when things don't go your way? Love it. No, you don't. Right? We like it when things go our way. You might feel like whatever steps you're trying to take right now, it's like every, every road is blocked. Everywhere you go, you run into opposition. You wonder where God might be in all of it. And I ask the question, do you believe that God is clearly present at work? bringing about opportunity even through opposition. And so a quick review and application for us here. In Stephen's life, what have we seen? Was God with Stephen and working through Stephen? Certainly he was. Was God using opposition to give Stephen an opportunity? Certainly. He's going to get to proclaim the gospel to the Sanhedrin because of the opposition that came up against him. Was God revealing himself as a faithful God who makes and keeps promises and always provides better than we deserve? Yes, he was. And Stephen was talking about another man. He was focusing in on Joseph. Do we see this in Joseph's life? Yes. God was with Joseph. It even says God was with him. But God was with him, right? And working through him. Was God working through Joseph? Oh, certainly he was. God was using opposition to give Joseph an opportunity to save his people. Otherwise, they would have been wiped out. How else was the promise going to be fulfilled had his brothers not opposed him and sold him into slavery so that he was in a position where he could make sure that God's people continued to be fed in the midst of a famine where presumably many died, right? So, so we see all this opposition, yet opportunity through it. In Joseph's life, God was revealing himself as a faithful God who makes and keeps promises and always provides better than we deserve. And let me just fast forward a little bit, because I'm not waiting until Stephen gets there. 
What about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Do we see this there? Certainly. God the Father was with the Son, and the Son abided in the Father. God used opposition against Jesus as the very means by which he would save his people. How are we saved? We're saved by the blood of the Lamb who was slain, who was hung on a cross because of opposition of sinful men. God was revealing himself as a faithful God whose promises, all of them, find their yes in Christ Jesus, providing us far better than we deserve. So, let me ask you, in your life, in your life, is God himself, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in you? This happens the moment you're converted, the moment you're born again. The moment you come to recognize by God's grace that you are sinful beyond your own repair. That you're not going to work your way out of this, but that you are desperately in need of a Savior. And you hear the good news that Jesus lived and died and rose again and that He is your only hope. And so you say humbly before Him, God, I am not my own, and everything that I would do would not be enough to please you, but I know, I've heard the good news that your Son has pleased you perfectly, that, that He never sinned, and that He died in my place for my sins on the cross, and so I now receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, all of my sins washed away by the blood of the Lamb, your Holy Spirit now coming to live in me. Your sin is opposed to you. Uh, the only way to have victory over that sin is to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Is God Himself, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in you? Have you been saved from the wrath of God by God's grace through faith in Jesus who died in our place for our sins? And can you? Can you? Though your plans have been all messed up by a pandemic and maybe you're mad about it, maybe you're just discouraged by it. It's just getting really old and you're struggling. Can you, in the midst of all of this, acknowledge that God has given you far better than you deserve? I know I can. I can look at all of this and say, God, any day, even on my worst day, I can acknowledge that you, God, have given me far better than I deserve. Anything that seems to me like opposition, I know you're just opening up a door for an opportunity for me. So God, help me to be a man like Stephen. Help me to be a man like Joseph. Help me to be faithful, to trust that you, God, are a God who makes and keeps promises, that you, God, are with me and providing for my every need and far beyond that, according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus, that you've given me everything I need for this day. Oh God, you have blessed us so much. Let's pray. Father, thank you. That's true. God, you have blessed us. You have blessed me far beyond what I deserve. And not all the time does it feel like that. There's days where, where I get this sense of entitlement, like I know a whole lot of stuff, and I, I know that you should have done this differently. It, it could have been better if you would have only done this. But God, we trust that you are over and over and over again, taking what looks like what people intend for evil and using it for good. So God, we are a people who have so much to be thankful for. And so as we now close our service by singing a song about the 10,000 reasons, we even acknowledge that, that there's way more than that. Uh, 
And we long for the day, as we sang earlier, the day when Jesus returns, that we can personally uh, look to you and give you thanks and praise and worship and glory and honor as we bow down at your feet. You, the God who deserves all glory, honor, praise, and power. You, the God who, who deserves to be worshipped. You, the God against whom we have rebelled, but the God who, in your mercy, sent your Son to die in our place for our sins. Oh God, it is good to know you. Uh, and God, would you give us, even this week, a heart filled with thankfulness for all that you have provided. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing uh, a closing song, and so I invite you uh, to, to join with us as we sing.